Welcome to Human Impact Stories, hosted by Eileen Sweeney and Amy McGuire, two business leaders with background in corporate social responsibility and community outreach. More than human interest, these stories have human impact. And now, Human Impact Stories. Hi, this is Eileen. We started this podcast because Amy and I actually had a level of frustration. We know great things are happening to make our community stronger, but those stories don't always get told, or they are undertold. So, each episode will highlight a person or an organization doing great things and having impact on the community in innovative and sustained ways. You'll hear from grassroots leaders, social responsibility experts, athletes, artists, and educators who will share their stories. And we believe everyone has a story. So thank you for joining us. And now on to today's episode. TGIF, thankfulness, gratitude, impact, and friendship. Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to Human Impact, powerful stories from real people. I am so honored to be here and in the presence of my co-host, Eileen Sweeney, and today's guest and very good friend, Thomas Mance, the CEO of Feeding Tampa Bay. Human Impact is a podcast created to celebrate, educate, and inspire. And because words matter, this podcast positions stories around impactful words and impactful people. And that's who you're going to hear from today. Eileen? Thank you, Amy. And uh, Thomas, your word is serve. Um, There's so many stories, you know, that apply to the word serve. Serving your neighbors, serving your country, serving those in need. Uh, Thomas, please share with us what that word serve literally means to you and feeding Tampa Bay. Okay. Thomas, you... It's a very large word and has a lot of complexities to it, so I look forward to talking about that. Thank you. Thomas, it's been um, a privilege to be a volunteer along beside you and watch what you and your team have done. And you serve in so many different ways, not only serving food to people, but you serve our community. Um, I'm always amazed at the breadth and the things that you do, uh, how you fight hunger, not with just knowledge, but um, just with being a thought leader. So would you just talk a little bit about you? You've had an interesting path to get here and um, have been doing this for a while. So tell our listeners about about you and about the amazing work done at Feeding Tampa Bay. Uh, thanks. I think, you know, the uh, there's a longer and shorter narrative always to some the arc of someone's life, but I would say that uh, probably uh, there's always been a sense in my own life that I felt a desire to do more and to live into a certain calling, right? You don't do this work because of happenstance. You do this work because you feel led to do it. But I grew up in the corporate world and I grew up in New York, you know, the New York City area, Wall Street, working on in uh, banks and finance companies and, you know, things of a very traditional nature. But, uh, but you know, oftentimes in that, I felt a sense of wanting to do more and be more. I grew up in a very uh, thoughtful household around social responsibility. One of my earliest memories is watching the Watergate hearings with my mother. And I remember what I remember about that is, uh, and later I went back and read most all of those books, but what I remember about it wasn't, it wasn't the story of a president. It was a story of a group of leaders and communities that came together and said, this isn't okay. 
you know, we need to be better than this. And I, you know, the message of that resonated with me. And my mother was very much that way. But fast forwarding to New York, I had been thinking about what I wanted to do. And as always, there's a few precipitating events. And uh, one of them was I decided uh, I uh, called uh, the local food bank in New York City. There's two of them right before Thanksgiving, like literally two days before Thanksgiving and said, hey, I want to come volunteer. I want to help out on Thanksgiving. Surely people need help on Thanksgiving. And the guy on the other end of the phone said, uh, said, yeah, we don't need you. I said, what do you mean you don't need me? And he goes, buddy, everybody and their brother wants to volunteer on Thanksgiving. People are hungry 365 days a year. Pick another day. And then he hung up. Now, this is New York City, so this is not an unusual social discourse, right? <laughs> um, but about two months later, I walked into an organization called God's Love We Deliver. And their organization and mission purpose was to provide nutritious meals to homebound AIDS patients, kind of a meals on wheels, but in a different way. And I started volunteering and I answered phones and I cut vegetables. And I remember being a part of this world and, and connecting with these folks. And, you know, you were around every person under the sun cutting vegetables or I would answer phone calls and I would talk to donors and not know they were donors. I didn't even know how it worked. And so, but I was taken with the milieu. I still remember the young woman that, um, uh, Heather, who trained me as the volunteer coordinator. Uh, I still remember the way she took me through the process and uh, was so thoughtful and caring and grateful for my time. Uh, and so, you know, that was a, a social, but also a psychological and emotional and spiritual event. And there are a few other things, but not long after that, six months after that, I walked into the bank, I cashed all my chips into the middle of the table and I left. Uh, and so I walked away from a life of um, certainly opportunity and privilege to a life of service. I made my way back to Florida where it was economically more uh, possible to live without the means I had. And I started volunteering. Uh, and so I was volunteering with a bunch of different organizations, my church and other organizations. And I was asked to help out a little charity that had just started. And their objective was to provide clean underwear and socks to homeless folks. So the gentleman that started it had talked to a bunch of homeless people, and, and they all said, and he asked them what they needed. They all said the same thing. We don't have socks and underwear. You can't get that donated because it's a hygienic item, right? Most of us donate used clothing. Well, and Henry said, well, I can do that. So Henry decided to start finding socks and underwear. Uh, so this little charity started up and they needed someone to help run it. A friend of mine was running it it's kind of as a volunteer. And so I got involved and started, you know, figuring out how to do logistics and find product and move it. Uh, but the first person that started, it was a gentleman named Henry Landworth. Now, if you don't know who Henry Landworth is, he's, a, uh, he's now since passed, but he was a Holocaust survivor. He spent five years in Nazi camps from 13 to 18 years old. Uh, and Henry uh, ended up with a life of wealth and became a philanthropist. And he started an organization in Orlando called God's Love We Deliver, which, excuse me, uh, called uh, Give Kids the World, which is a place for um, wish kids to go to Disney. It's a remarkable achievement. So at any rate, Henry called, said, who is this guy running this thing? Uh, my friend said, well, it's this, you know, fellow I know, yada, yada, yada. And so Henry comes over to see me and he says, you know, what's your story? And I was like, well, I, you know, I'm just here to help. And so he said, I want to talk to you. Henry is a very persuasive man, really persuasive. And Henry, you know, talked to me for a few minutes and he looks at me and said, you need to run this. And I said, I don't know anything about running a charity. He said, well, you don't need to know anything about running a charity. You know how to run a business. 
And I said, well, Henry, I'm not really sure. And he said, here's what you need to know. You and I are on opposite sides of the same prayer. I need someone to run this and you need someone, something to do. And that started my career in the nonprofit world. And I've spent 20 years in it since. So it's a long answer to your story of how did I end up on this call today? Uh, but that's how I ended up here. Now, well, I have to um, j- just one comment. I would say uh, as a New Yorker uh, myself, I certainly know that organization that you're talking about, and they continue to be doing amazing right. work. And their, um, their outreach strategies have grown along with certainly the need, but but they have done so much more than I think they even got, you know, in their initial mission. So um, I loved hearing that story. Thank you. Thomas, you have such an amazing story. And the irony of that is all the years I've known you, I had the opportunity to work with Gary Landreth. And when I was in Orlando, oh, okay. and yeah. I, uh-huh. um, another amazing carrying yeah. on the legacy of that great work. So um, tell us about Feeding Tampa Bay uh, today, but moreover, just what you have done in the last few years. And then I've watched you lead through hurricanes, which have been amazing how quickly you pivot. And not that that's not a new vocabulary word, we all know, but um, you've continued to serve uh, without skipping a beat. Uh, Maybe talk just about what you all do. And there are so many stories of people you have impacted. I know it'd take days to explain those, but um, let's just hear more about Feeding Tampa Bay. Yeah, thank you, Amy. I think uh, so. I was asked to come to Tampa specifically to kind of help out uh, the organization. It had uh, it was an underperforming jewel in our community. It was a necessary and appropriate asset. Feeding Tampa Bay has been here for 37 years, uh, and and food banks are typically the backbone of food relief in a community. You have all of the agencies that you know everybody's familiar with. So a Boys and Girls Club, a church, uh, you know, a, a soup kitchen, right? Uh, all of those are supported by the local food bank. And, and Feeding Tampa Bay had been that organization for many years, but just had never quite lived into its full potential. And quite frankly, it's one of the things that really excited me. Uh, in my career, uh, I generally was a person that liked the opportunity to go in and figure out how to build something, create something. And so uh, Feeding Tampa Bay, while noble in its mission, was probably not as successful in its results as it wanted to be. Uh, and so I had several conversations with the board and came down and, and there were some challenges for sure. Uh, But, you know, I think what good missions do is they step in between two needs. I think when you see good charity, it steps in between two needs. And food banks are the perfect example of stepping between two needs. I don't know if you all know the story of how food banking started. Do you know that? And I know I'm digressing way off of your question. I love it. Uh, So, But this story always reminds me of why charity and philanthropy work. So about 55 years ago, there was a gentleman named John Van Hengel. And John was called to a life of service. He left Los Angeles and went back to Phoenix, Arizona, his hometown, and volunteered at St. Mary's Church. And John would do a variety of things like any church volunteer would do, one of which was he would provide – Uh, food, uh, meals on Wednesdays to folks that came in to the church. And one day a mother came in and she had many children with her and and, uh, obviously was struggling. And John ended up in a conversation with her and uh, he asked her, he said, well, when you're not here at St. Mary's, where do you get your food? And she said, "Uh, like most people I know, we dive in dumpsters behind grocery stores and restaurants because they're throwing perfectly good food out. And that's how I feed my kids. Right. Let's think about that for just a second. 
No mother, no human being should have to do that. Never fails to just, boy, it just gets me. So um, because there's always divine inspiration, right? Uh, This woman um, looks at John and says, you know what? It's perfectly good food. Here's what you should do. You should get that food before they throw it out, and you should put it somewhere and create something like a food bank so someone like me can come and get it. John said, I can do that. And so he would go around Phoenix in his station wagon, no air conditioning, no nothing, go to stores, restaurants, grab the food, bring it back to St. Mary's and tell people come get food here. That was the first food bank ever created in the United States. There are 200 of us now. And last year we provided over 4 billion meals to the community that would otherwise have been thrown out. And so at the heart of what we do and why I think what we do is so important is there is excess food in the community and there are people who need it. And the food bank's ultimate mission is to step in between need and opportunity and connect the two. And so Feeding Tampa Bay was built with that idea in mind. How do you step in between the opportunity and the need and connect them? And so our mission had long been to make sure that we provide meals. And we've done that for many, many years. In fact, about three months ago, we passed our 500th million meal, 500 millionth meal provided to the community in 37, 38 years. Uh, Right. It's a pretty spectacular achievement, right? Uh, But our mission has also evolved from there. And the way that we look at food today is that it's a pathway to health. Really, the outcome we want is health. Food is simply a methodology to get there. Because health is the gateway to success and capability as human beings. And Amy, you and I have had this conversation many times about the idea that why do we want fresh, perishable, healthy foods? Because we want the people we serve to be healthy. Because that's the framework or the foundation upon which all success stands. But a couple of years ago, as we started to look at our work, we also moved towards an ending hunger strategy to marry along with that which we started to build out a process of developing job training programs, benefits connections, partnership connections, training programs, all of which would build out capability. So our second objective, first is health, second is capability. Right? Ultimately, we want a hunger-free Tampa Bay, which means make sure anybody that needs food gets it, and then secondarily, make sure anybody we can remove out of the food process, the food recovery relief process, and into a life of capability, right? So it's both. Again, a really long answer to your question, but I'll pause there for a moment. No, I think that's exactly what You want to schedule guests that speak in shorter (laughs) clip sentences, I would imagine. There's so much to this story, as you know. And, And also, you said something that I don't know if our listeners understand, because I didn't until you educated me on this, and that's the definition of hunger. And when you talk about that, talk about who's hungry in our yeah. community. Yeah, and you know it's it's funny. There there is a USDA clinical dis, you know uh, definition of, of food insecurity, and 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 it's it really comes down to the ability to access food, a the ability to access healthy food, b have the resources to do it, and c to be able to collect food in an, in a socially appropriate manner. And those three things are important, right? So one is, can you get food, right? Do you have a grocery store in your area that has healthy food, right? Can you afford to get food uh, economically or otherwise that, uh, that is healthy for you? And third, can you do that in a way that's acceptable socially? And so let me tell you an example of that because it's an awful example. We did a study with JWB over in Pinellas County of high school kids 
uh, around food insecurity. And one of the things that we found was that some of the teenagers were trading personal favors and sexual practices in order to get food. That's not socially acceptable. It's the same thing as we have people that will sell their possessions in order to get food. That's not socially acceptable. So at the end of our end of the day, our responsibility from a standpoint is to step in and make sure we provide that resource. But the simplest way for your listeners to think about the idea of food insecurity is people don't know when or where their next meal is coming with regularity. Right? That's the thing is you don't know when or where it's coming with regularity. So who's food insecure? First, you know, we never want to talk about numbers. We want to talk about people, but I'll start with numbers. One out of four kids in Tampa Bay today is food insecure. And we're not talking post-COVID yet. I assume we're going to talk about that a little bit later. One out of seven adults is food insecure. And I actually think that those numbers are low because they use some very antiquated methodologies to uh, consider who is technically food insecure. Do the two of you know what the federal limit for benefits for poverty in the, in the United States is today? The dollar amount for a family of four? Yeah. No. $24,500 a year. You are considered being above poverty if your family of four makes $24,500 a year. Do you know any one person? that can survive on $24,500 a year. And so we have a lot more folks in our arena who are food insecure, and typically they are people in our lives every single day. So they are people who, in our world today, and we've seen this, they work in service industries, they work in transportation industries, they work in um, um, entertainment industries, uh, they work in our hotels, they work in our restaurants, they work in our casinos, they work in our arenas. Uh, so there's everyone around you, the average person that is in a service type job does not earn enough. Their family doesn't earn enough. United Way's Alice report would tell you that a family needs to earn somewhere close to $90,000 a year just to be food secure, family of four. And most of the people we serve earn under about $65,000 a year as a family. And so the numbers are pretty staggering. They've been staggering. But what I would always like to suggest to folks that listen to something like this is that it is someone in your life. Uh, one of the stories that I remember well is we had a national grocery chain that was volunteering with us. One of the gentlemen was on our board. And he and I and one of his store managers were handing food out at a food distribution. And the store manager handed food into the car of the person that was in line and said hello to the person by name. And after they drove off, our board member said to his store manager, how do you know her? And he said, well, she works at one of our stores. Right? We've had people that have seen their teachers inside of our food pantries, volunteers that have seen a teacher. And so what I would remind everybody is that food insecurity isn't a moral failure. It is not a, an issue of a lack of caring or responsibility. It is an economics issue. And while that can become a really political conversation really quickly, we'd like to avoid that. But let's just accept the reality that a whole lot of our community doesn't earn enough to take care of their families with a living wage. Right. So, you know, uh, you referenced uh, the pandemic. And maybe you can tell our listeners how you've adapted to the pandemic and, and how has that shifted your uh, ability to serve. Yeah, thank you. So far, I assume your uh, your target audience are nerds who will listen to my. Uh... <laughs> we we hope so. Yes, we hope so. <laughs> Someone who's on a late night drive and can't find a radio station. So um, 
so, Eileen, I think, you know, when you when you consider the idea of the pandemic, I think so we are a disaster recovery organization, Amy, as you mentioned before, we're here during hurricanes. And so we have a we have a disaster recovery plan preparedness. We sit on the EOC and all that. So we're prepared better than most for disasters. But I would point out to people that the covid disaster had three major elements that we had never experienced before. The first is breadth. We saw this across the entirety of the United States, if not the entire world. So what that means is far more people were impacted, and they were impacted at a rapid rate, right? So people who on March 15th thought they were well-employed by March 30th were out of a job. And so we saw a significant number of people come into our world across the entirety of the United States. And that really meant the next issue that we saw was depth. We saw far more people come into our care. So prior to COVID, we had about 600, and we, co- we cover a 10-county area, we had about 625,000 folks who were food insecure. Post-COVID, 90 days later, we have 1.8 million who are food insecure. Right, it's grown that rapidly. And so we had far more people in our care than we ever had. And 70% of them, we did some testing, uh, some surveying at our distributions, 70% had never been to a food line before. Some 60% had just recently lost a job. And so it was a, it was a greater depth than we had ever seen. And then the other part was all of our resource structures were impacted. So we couldn't find enough food. Donated food dried up. We couldn't bring volunteers in to help because we had to manage social distance and safety issues. We couldn't distribute food the normal ways that we did because we really believe in client choice. So typically when someone comes to get food from us, they choose what they want. That's an opportunity of dignity and care and respect. We couldn't do that anymore because we had to start creating social distance. So we had to pivot and change virtually everything that we did because of that impact. So it had three major components to us that we had not dealt with before. I think the last component that I would add, and we don't yet know the story of this, the echo of a disaster typically reverberates for quite a long time. In a hurricane, we would tell you the echo lasts about six months. You have the initial disaster, you have the initial recovery, but the echo or the rebuild takes about six months. We've suggested to our board and to our supporters and and partners, uh, we're talking 12 to 18 months. So no matter what the politics and optics are around opening up or closing down or what's right or wrong, just the reality of the arc of the crisis is going to last much longer. So we've had to change virtually every business practice we've had, and we've had to ramp up all of our response because our initial goal is to double our output. Uh, And so it's been a pretty substantive undertaking, uh, Eileen, as we've kind of made our way through this. We know corporate social responsibility is important to businesses, um, from cash donations to volunteers to in-kind products. And you've got a lot of great partners. We've been discussing a few of yours in particular. Uh, Amy, who are some of the standouts that you've come across? Simply to say um, the relationships that uh, what I've seen feeding Tampa Bay and specifically Thomas and his team build um, are incredible. You know, we saw this huge outreach nationally, and I love to see Amazon and Jeff Bezos and, and nationally people giving to Feeding America. I hope that trickled down certainly to you, Thomas. I had the chance um, to work on a couple of your mobile um, outreach where you literally set up the most amazing, organized, safe way of distributing 
food, people drove up. And that's a survey you were talking about, um, 70% that had not ever been to any type of a food delivery or food service organization, drove up in their cars. And we as volunteers were gloved and masked and were able to put in um, bags of food. And fresh meat. And it's just truly incredible what you have done with those partners. So I, I know, I mean, Publix, I'm going to name them out because I'm so proud of all of them. Bank of America, Mosaic, the Bucks, the Rays, the Lightning. You have really some amazing partners. Can you talk about this with our listeners? Because there are businesses on this line that I believe are focusing their efforts toward food and toward this kind of service. And what can they do to just stay involved? Talk about those stories. Yeah. I, so thank you. I, I would I would answer first in, in two ways. I would answer with a global answer. And so one of the things that I think that everybody that listens to this needs to understand is that the charitable re- relief network for any kind of cause cannot solve the problem. If we're going to have healthy and capable communities, it's going to take a connection between uh, the governmental organizations that represent our citizenry. Uh, the nonprofit organizations that generally serve those who are in need, and our corporate partners who are leaders and connectors in our community. It's going to take all three. And I think when you look at something like COVID, one of the observations I would share is that it's been pretty positive to have all three come together. Uh, And I think it's hopefully a model as we move out from here, because I think it's important that everybody move towards uh, a solution. I think uh, too often times uh, groups deselect for a variety of reasons. But if a society and particularly if a community is going to be healthy, it's going to be so because everybody pitches in and says we are all the better for us participating. Specifically to your question, Amy, yes, we have really been appreciative of corporate support. Uh, you know, folks like you often say to me, gee, we really appreciate, I think at the top of the call, you were so complimentary and thankful. But I think we always understand we can't do our work without the support of volunteers, without the support of donors, without the support of corporations and individuals who step into our work with us. There are so many stories. We got calls uh, from people we had never even talked to that said, I see what you're doing and I want to help. Uh, early on, uh, Mayor Castor has been coming to most of our distribution at Hillsborough Community College, and and um, traffic was a nightmare. Uh, in fact, we finally had to bring the police in because, as it turns out, the one thing we aren't good at is traffic planning. Uh, and the police came in and did a terrific job in helping us figure out how to manage thousands of cars, thousands and thousands of cars. Uh, but the mayor came over, and we were talking about she couldn't get in to volunteer, and so she had to kind of make her way through, and she was talking about it, and we said, we'd love to see what it looks like, but we can't get a drone up. We're next to the airport. Mayor Castor said, well, I can take care of that. But 10 minutes later, she had a helicopter in the air, and we got footage of the size and scope and magnitude of what we're doing. But it's amazing uh, when you look at the size and scope of that. But all of it happens. Uh, because folks are willing to step into that. You know, the the Rays early on hosted a food drive for us, a virtual food drive, one of the first ones we'd ever had. And we had tremendous success with that. It was just, it gave us great visibility. Of course, you've heard the story of, uh, as I jokingly referred to in my BFF, Tom Brady, uh, stepping <laughs> in and making a great donation to us. But that was followed by a really terrific donation from the Glazer family and the DeBartolos. And so many individuals stepped up. But the Bank of America, 
and Publix has asked us 20 times what they can do. Uh, we get calls from Brian West on a regular basis saying, hey, what do you need? How are things going? Um, one of the things that's unique about our job and one of the things that I love and never forget is one of the privileges of the position that I have is we get to uh, experience the generosity of the community standing next to uh, the crisis in the community. So we see people who are at their worst and need us the most, and we get to work with people who are at their best and can help the most. And it's a really unique spot to stand in the middle of those two truths because they're tr they're both true at the same time. And uh, I just can't tell you how many times I have stood there and been a part of both of those stories and have been remarkably heartbroken and remarkably grateful. What an amazing comparison of two words, and, and I think best wins that every time because what you've been able to do and, and take care of the worst side. Um, I, I may have been asking this before Eileen has been thinking it, but what words drive you? What is something that you feel like you live day in and day out? Mm. I, I, you know, it, uh, there's probably several. Um I was thinking of what James Limpton always asked people in his interviews when you'd ask what's your favorite swear word, right? <laughs> I assume we're not going to do that. Um, not today. You know, <laughs> Thank you, no. <laughs> it's human impact, but of a different type. Um, you know, I think um, there are many words that I would probably describe that are important to me that, um, uh, that probably have suggested... Um, the path or arc of my own life and the way I would approach this. And so I would ultimately choose the word faithful. Now, faithful, of course, immediately applies a religious connotation, and there certainly is a component of that. But uh, to do the work that we do requires uh, not as much the idea of hope, but, but the idea of faith. You have to believe that what you're doing matters. You have to believe that what you're doing is enduring. You have to believe in that the moment of the battle will win the war. Uh, because when you're standing in a sea of cars and folks of need, you know, Amy, I, you know, I remember vividly uh, at one of the distributions at Hillsborough County, uh, I was doing traffic. And so I was watch. I watched a mother come in or a woman come in. I assume a mother. There was a child seat in the back car and she was crying and she was just bawling. And she got to the front of the where we load food in, as you saw, and she was still crying. And I could see her. She left and she was still crying. You know, uh, uh, we have to have some degree of faith that somehow we're making her life a bit better. We have to have some degree of faith that there's going to be enough food. We have to have some degree of faith that we as a community can do this. You know, Woody Allen said 80% of life has shown up. A lot of about being faithful for me is that I've just continued to try and show up no matter what. No matter whether we're having our best day or worst day, I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of our organization about. And again, you talked about the way that pantry was run in St. Pete and the others. We have a team of people who inspire me and are just absolutely awesome and incredible human beings who have said, we are going to throw ourselves at this problem with velocity and force and passion and love. And we're going to make sure that we're faithful to the cause. Uh, and it's, it's a privilege to be a part of. You just hit on so many words, velocity and, and, and inspiration. You're truly an inspiration, what you all are doing. And uh, tell our listeners, because we want more people to know about what you do, how they can be involved. Um, 
your website. We were talking about, we mentioned it, we'll mention it again, but is that the best way to be engaged with what Feeding Tampa Bay is doing to serve? Well, the first thing I would say is that every human being that listens to this podcast has a responsibility to be involved in their community in some way, shape, or form. Nobody has a gift of, right? We all have had someone come alongside us and help us. If you want to help Feeding Tampa Bay, like many nonprofit or social services organizations, there's four ways to help. Give us the gift of your time. Volunteer. There's no more precious asset that you have than standing in and helping us take care of our community and your neighbor. If you're so disposed, give us the gift of your resources. Everything we do is charitably funded, and some people can help by um, uh, supporting us. Give us the gift of your talents. Amy, you were a great support on our board for a long time. You lent us your expertise, your background, your willingness, your contacts. And then the last part, I think, which we don't talk enough about is give us the gift of your voice. We need to raise up and lift up our community who need us to speak on their behalf. You know, for that woman sitting in that car and crying through that line, I view part of my responsibility as making sure that I lift her voice. She doesn't have somebody to advocate for. That's our job. And we need to do that for her. Those of us that can need to step in and advocate for those of us who right now can't. Uh, And so I think those are the four ways that you can help. Specifically, if you go to our website, feedingtampabay.org, you can find out how to volunteer or donate. And I think most importantly, if you're listening to this and you need food, you can go to feedingtampabay.org, and there's a page that allows you to punch in your zip code and find out where there's food in your neighborhood. So, Thomas, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, this has been great. Uh, I hope and you have a well, good editor. <laughs> oh, we don't need one. Uh, but I will say, and, that, and while we've heard a lot about the way you serve, um, I really love when you came back and talked about your own favorite word, that word faithful and faith. And you've given us a lot to think about that and what it means to be a member of this community. Uh, so many of the, the words that you used today are um, powerful and ones that our listeners will continue to think about and reflect upon. So thank you for that. I feel like um, we've learned a lot today and these stories are very important and they certainly have impact. So until next time, on behalf of Amy and me, we'd like to once again thank you, remind everyone to go to feedingtampabay.org and also remember that everyone has a story. And our big question is, who is telling yours? Today, we were so lucky to have those stories told by you, Thomas. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for listening today. Tune in every Friday to hear more stories that go beyond human interest to human impact. You'll want to listen next week as our word is hope. And our guest is Tim Marks, CEO of Metropolitan Ministries. And you can learn more about our efforts at www.humankindpartnership.com. Human Impact Stories is produced by Jody Locke with technical support and editing provided by Kevin Tice.